Well, now that our missions month is over, we want to return to our study of the ancient book of Daniel. And I want to remind you that the theme that we're studying under is keeping faith in a corrupt culture. Because the book of Daniel is much more than ancient history. It is an up-to-date, relevant handbook for those who want to remain faithful to God in a culture that believes we should either renounce our convictions entirely or compromise them till the point that they're barely recognizable. Now, earlier in our study, four Jewish teenagers reminded us that God's people are able to draw wisdom from somebody who's bigger than all of us put together, somebody who predates all of us from the Lord himself. Because those four boys as teenagers demonstrated a discernment far beyond their years. They had been immersed in a culture that had cruelly victimized them. But yet Daniel and his friends sensed that they could be relevant in that culture without relinquishing their morality and their devotion to God. As we said earlier in our study, they understood that involvement with a corrupt culture is appropriate because it's necessary for witness. But devotion to a corrupt culture is never appropriate because that betrays God. So the boys did some remarkable things. They agreed to learn the language of their oppressors. They agreed to receive an education rooted in beliefs that were offensive to them. They agreed to accept new names that insulted their identity. And they entered civil service in a power-hungry, godless empire. And if you've read their story, you know they did all of that without entertaining a victim mentality, without voicing disrespect, and without embracing hatred. But there was one thing they refused to do, you'll remember. They refused to eat the king's food. Because in a Chaldean culture, if they had eaten the king's food, it would have symbolized that their ultimate dependence was in Nebuchadnezzar and their ultimate loyalty was to Nebuchadnezzar. And their ultimate loyalty was to God. Well, today, as I promised a few weeks ago, I want to consider some of the implications of the boys' discerning decisions. Decisions they made as they stood at the intersection of fallen human politics and devotion to God. A place where Jesus' followers are both seriously disadvantaged and seriously advantaged. That's why navigating that intersection is so tricky. Now, my subject matter means I'm going to be wading into matters where deep polarization, fever pitch emotions are sadly the norm in our country. And while I'm sensitive to the moment in which we stand, I do not want to be a prisoner of the moment. God's people are never prisoners of the moment. So here comes the disclaimer. I want you to know that my words today are not intended as either endorsement or condemnation of any politician, political party, political platform, or political policies. My words aren't meant to improperly influence what you'll do in the voting booth this coming Tuesday. The timing 
of this message is based on where we're at in our study of Daniel. And I've got a hunch also on what the Holy Spirit wants. Today, I simply want to direct your focus away from the unholy to the holy, away from the moment toward the eternal, away from the destructive and towards devotion. Because as Jesus' followers, our calendars go way beyond the next election, and they go way beyond the next 24-hour news cycle. We need to keep our heads while all around us people are losing theirs. And we need to live in light of the coming judgment seat of Christ, not midterm elections or 2020. Scripture refers to us as God's elect. That means despite our brokenness, despite our sin in Jesus, we have received God's vote. And our lives and our daily decisions ought to reflect that election, not the next election in America, and that reality, not the political ugliness that is epidemic in our culture. We must not be prisoners of the moment. Now, to set the stage for our consideration, I want to read the verse we were looking at when we were last in Daniel, Daniel 1.8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. I'm entitling our study today, Don't Defile Your Devotion. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, as always, I need the equipping of your Holy Spirit if I'm going to represent your heart accurately, if I'm going to preach and teach prophetically. And as always, we need the enlightenment that comes only from the Holy Spirit so that we can understand eternal things, so that we can understand your heart, and so that we can understand our appropriate response to your heart. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us for this never-to-be-repeated moment. We pray these things for the honor of Christ in his church, and the honor of Christ through the church that represents him. We pray these things with confidence because we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we listen for God's voice together this afternoon, may the Lord be with you. The story of Daniel and his friends is a story of Jewish oppression and the courageous response of the faithful. But it's also something of an informal allegory because the story reminds us that more than the words we speak, our important decisions announce our ultimate devotions to us and to those who are observing us. Our important decisions reveal our ultimate loyalties. And the initial decisions of Daniel and his friends, after they have been cruelly exiled to Babylon, remind us that people devoted to God can serve the state under God, but they cannot serve the state as if it is God. Let me say that again. People devoted to God can serve the state under God, but they cannot serve the state as if it is God. We can serve the state under God for one simple reason. Human government was God's idea. 
Scripture is very clear on that point, both in the Old Testament and in the New. Government was God's idea. It was intended to advance the common good. And it was given a job description by God. Government has been established to protect the innocent, to punish the evildoer, to protect the general welfare, to assist the needy, to steward God's creation, and to establish and maintain social order. Now, Jesus affirmed God's creation of government when he said, Give Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give God the things that are God's. Now, key to understanding what Jesus meant and how Daniel and his friends could serve under a pagan ruler is the recognition that everything belongs to God. Would you say those four words? Everything belongs to God, including the authority of government. So for that reason, obedience given to Caesar, and again, Caesar stands for government, obedience given to Caesar is given out of obedience to God. It's not given as an endorsement of Caesar. Whenever I'm performing a wedding ceremony, I talk to brides about the command to submit to your husband as unto the Lord and what that really means. But I always stress the point that your husband may be mistaken, he may be misinformed, he may be wrong. Husbands sometimes are. You're thinking husbands frequently are. I know that. But anyhow, but you still honor God's call upon his life and, and your cooperation is not as unto your husband, it's as unto the Lord who set up that blueprint. You do it as unto the Lord. And then I tell brides, in doing that, you're honoring God. And when you honor God, he honors you and he's got your back so that even if your husband is wrong because you honored God, God will see to it that things turn out okay. Well, the same thing is true here. Our obedience to the government is given out of obedience to God's word, not as an endorsement of that particular government or somebody holding a position. After all, the Caesar that Jesus spoke of, the Roman Empire, was corrupt and cruel and unjust at many points. And Jesus wasn't endorsing any of that garbage. What he was endorsing was the absolute sovereignty of God. So any claim Caesar government makes on us must be weighed against the infinitely higher claim God has upon us. God doesn't ordain the rights of governments to serve their own unjust purposes. God has established government for his ultimate purposes. And those are many times beyond our grasp and beyond our reach. So when governments go beyond the boundaries God has established for them, God will judge them, and we must not obey them. Now, Peter understood those things. That's why he wrote in one of his letters, Be subject for the Lord's sake to emperors or governors as sent by him. Now, Peter wasn't endorsing corrupt and evil rulers. He was reminding us that Scripture says God sets rulers in place and God removes them. He puts them in place. We must understand their place. 
We must not give Caesar anything that is contrary to the Lord's sake. And not only did Peter understand that, Paul understood that. And that's why Paul said, our citizenship is in God's kingdom, not any nation state. Jesus' followers are aliens in any nation, including the United States of America. We are aliens called to live out the alien ideas of God's kingdom inside the foreign structures and institutions of fallen human society. And God calls us to do that so that we can witness to the fact that the structures of fallen human society are not permanent and they are not ultimate, God is. Now you don't need me to tell you participating in two different kingdoms is not for the faint of heart. It's tricky. It's tension-filled. It's a tough assignment. But God doesn't call his people to run away from things that are difficult. He sends us in to difficult places. And as we saw earlier, that's precisely what he did with Daniel and his friends. He sent them in. Daniel recognized that. He sent them into Babylon to live as aliens inside that pagan culture so that by their conduct and their words, they can demonstrate that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have the final word, Babylon wouldn't have the final word, God is ultimate, God is in control of his creation. So despite the fact that humanity often corrupts government in form, and in practice, and in the people who hold positions. Despite the fact that man often uses government inappropriately for unjust, selfish, ungodly, and oppressive purposes, government is still God's creation, and it's God's creation, it's a good thing. But good things become bad things when they become substitutes for the God who called them into being. Any good thing God creates can become a bad thing when it becomes a substitute for God himself. That's why Jesus' followers can serve the state under God, but they can't serve the state as if it is God. We cannot give our ultimate loyalty to any nation, any political party, any political platform, any political system, or any political leader. We cannot ground our hopes for a better tomorrow in the capacities of fallen human beings. They're too severely limited. We cannot derive our identity from them. Our identity has to come from God. We cannot shape our churches to reflect them. American churches should not offer too basic choices, Republicans at prayer or Democrats at prayer. That's a travesty. That means we've shaped our churches to reflect inappropriate allegiances. We can't shun diversity and deselect fellow believers because of political reasons. We can't make it our first duty to advance the interests of any political position, candidate, platform, or person. We can't embrace the all too widely embraced, but nonetheless idolatrous patriotism, 
party affiliation, or political allegiance that rejects everything that would critique it or question it. We cannot seek to advance the interests of some political entity at the expense of any and every other entity. We cannot join the chorus that says, my country, my party, my candidate, right or wrong. Those words should never flow through the lips of a follower of Jesus because that's misplaced confidence. That's misplaced loyalty. And if it isn't checked by the Word, by the Spirit, by the body of Christ, it becomes an idolatrous, obsessive, emotion-packed loyalty that produces a smug self-righteousness that renders us spiritually tone-deaf and that inevitably conflicts with our devotion to God. We must not give Caesar what belongs to God. That's why I'd like to suggest we need to continually ask God if our political positions and passions express his concerns and interests or our own. We need to ask if our minds are being transformed by Jesus or conformed to the politics of this world. We need to ask if we're motivated by the Holy Spirit or by our own pride, economics, fear, self-interest, insecurity, doubt, anger, resentment, bias, or prejudice. We need to ask ourselves if some good cause has preempted the great concerns of God. We need to ask ourselves if we have become uncritical in our support of some political figure or party, or organization, or any organization, secular or Christian. We need to ask ourselves if our loyalty to some political entity has led us to accept any demand it may place upon our character. We need to ask ourselves where our hopes ultimately lie, where our loyalty lies, where our confidence ultimately rests. We need to ask both God and ourselves if we have defiled our devotion. And we need to remind ourselves we can't be generally devoted to God any more than we can be generally devoted to our spouse. The practice of devotion is always flawed, but devotion itself can't be mixed. You wives, if you were to ask your husband, Honey, have you been faithful to me? If your husband said generally, that, that wouldn't sound like a yes, would it? And husband, if you ask your wife, Honey, have you, been, have you been faithful to me? And she said, Well, generally, yeah, for the most part. Oh, that, that dog won't hunt. That thing's not getting out of the starting gate. Well, in the same way, you can't be generally faithful to God. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be perfect in following after God. Let me use myself as an example. I'm an imperfect husband. If my wife were here, she'd probably say amen under her breath. I'm an imperfect husband, but I am a one-woman man. I've never touched, engaged, emotionally engaged or had an improper conversation or had improper longings towards any other woman. I am imperfect as a husband, but I am a one-woman man. 
In the same way, we are all imperfect as followers of Jesus, but we can be one God, men and women. We can be devoted in our imperfection, but you can't be generally devoted. You can't be devoted to God and, because whatever follows the end is an idol, and it defiles your devotion to God. Now, how do you know when you're heading in that direction? Well, there are warning signs along the way. Let me suggest a few. We become defensive over and excusing of the obvious evils of our chosen political entity, be it party, platform, or person. We bend over backwards to make excuses for their sins, for their things that are contrary to God's Word. When you start doing that, you've started down the road. You negatively label those of a different persuasion and find yourself beginning to resent them, even though God has called you to love even your enemies. You spend hours talking politics, but minutes talking to people about Jesus. You spend more time in political discourse than in the Word of God. You divorce fellow believers over things that should never divide the body of Christ. Forgetting that when God in the Old Testament said, there are seven things that I detest, one of them was the person who sows discord among brothers and sisters. You'll know you've started down the road when you covet that last defining word in some political debate more than sharing God's word with somebody who is debating whether or not they need Jesus. You're down the road when your greatest concern is political victory rather than the conversion of lost humanity. You're down that road when both your deepest despairs and your high point joys center on political victories rather than the victories of the cross. Jesus once said to his disciples, when you see these things coming to pass, you know something else is at hand. Well, when you see these things coming to pass in your life, you know you've already defiled your devotion. Now, Daniel and his friends served inside a corrupt government, inside a corrupt culture, under a corrupt man. And they did so under God. But they never treated Babylon as if it was God. They never embraced political loyalty to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar over their covenant loyalty to God. They refused to defile their devotion. And I've got a hunch when God recorded their story, he knew believers in the United States millennia later would need to revisit the story so that we didn't lose our minds, didn't lose our heads, while all around us others were losing theirs. The implication of this truth can be uncomfortable, but I want to remind you the God who wants to liberate us from everything that diminishes us most often will trouble us before he can transform us. Transformation usually arrives on the heels of some un comfortable recognition. We don't change until God makes us aware we need to change. 
And the recognition, I've laid a hold of something that isn't appropriate for me as a child of God, is not one we come to easily. It's not one we come to immediately. We're all defensive. We all rationalize and we all project and we all excuse and we all played word, play word games until we get tired of the junk and finally say, all right, God, you got me. That's me. You're right. And that needs to change. See, Bible says God is the God of all comfort. But the people who discover that are the people who are willing to let God make them uncomfortable so that he can then comfort them by putting their feet on the right path. When Babylon was acting like Babylon, Daniel and his friends didn't take their cues from Babylon. They took their cues from God. They acted like followers of God. When fallen American culture is doing what fallen human beings do, acting sinfully, we cannot take our cues from fallen, sinful human culture. We have to take our cues from God. We don't play off the same score as fallen humanity. We play off the score that has been written by God. Otherwise, rather than offering the world an alternative to this pervasive ugliness, we just become another flavor of it with a religious tint. The people who have helped fallen humanity the most have been those who have contradicted it the most, and that should be the church. In our own nation, again, I don't think you need me to tell you this. I, I was preaching this and warning about this 30 years ago, and I hate to say I was right. But 30 years ago, I saw an ungodly affair between the body of Christ and human American political systems. And I knew the day would come when that idolatry would hurt our witness. And it has. It's upon us. Because in this culture today, if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, immediately people are got to assume you're a certain thing politically, and you've got to prove to them that you're something other than something more than that. Anytime you flirt with idolatry, comes time when you've got to pay the piper, and the price is really, really high. And it grieves my heart that a lot of people are tuning out the God who wants to restore them because too many of God's people have confused these issues and are more political beasts than they are devoted followers of Jesus. Let me leave you a final word. The story of Daniel and his friends illustrates that when confronted by a corrupt culture, we always have two choices, our commitment or our fear. Our commitment or our fear. See, when people put their ultimate hopes in something other than God, they intuitively know they have put their hopes in something that isn't reliable, isn't dependable, has no guarantees, and no good track record. 
So inevitably, they feel insecure. And when they get feeling insecure, they get fearful. And when they get fearful, they look for somebody to blame. They look for some villain who has produced their fear. And that's what's happening in America. People who have trusted the wrong things now see things breaking down, and they are afraid, and they're looking for somebody to blame. And most of it goes like this. It's you Republicans. No, it's you Democrats. And you can throw in socialists and Tea Party and so on, but that's basically, it's the right. No, no, it's the left. And nobody is recognizing the real problem, which is when a culture turns its back on God after generations of exposure to his light unlike any civilization in human history. The time comes when you have to pay the piper. When the fruit of your own choices begin to come back home. And my hope is that we'll be there to say, God is the only answer for this. But we won't be credible when we say that if we act like right or left is our God. We'll only be credible when we refuse to give to Caesar what belongs to God. So in this corrupt culture, our responses will either come out of our fear, and God's not given us a spirit of fear, or they will come out of our commitment. And of four Jewish teenagers exported from home, separated from family, could base their participation on their commitment instead of their fear, so can we. Don't defile your devotion. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, this hasn't been a hallelujah, pump up, feel so good teaching. But Lord, I know from experience the people who feel the best as they go through this world are those who align their lives with Scripture, not those who seek an emotional high. Father, as the culture around us frays at the edges, as the language of hate becomes the preferred dialogue and dialect of the culture, as polarization and tribalism and division and hostility and suspicion and malice and hatred become the norm, as governments seek power rather than the welfare of citizens, as injustice grows at every turn, God, help us to keep our heads as your people. And like those four teenage boys, Help us to be true to our devotion because then we'll be salt, then we'll be light, and then we'll be able to offer people a really good alternative. We pray that knowing we're going to need your grace, but confident you're pouring it out even now to those who are willing to receive it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.